Good morning. I'm glad you are with us this day. I hope you enjoyed these series of lessons that I've been doing. I'm going to change gears just a little bit and do something a little bit different. Just a couple of lessons uh, in this one. But I think it's very important. A famine. You know, famines are, for those who are involved, are not fun. They go without what they need for life. They don't have enough food. People in famine areas sometimes die because they're just not enough for them or for their children. Several years ago, it was written in an article by Dr. Ken Birding of Biola University. It tells a brief story. Am I not on? Tells a brief story. No, I'm not on. I'm on you. There I'm on. Sorry about that. Tells a brief story about a young lady named Stacy. We'll get this figured out. Stacy lived on a diet of chicken nuggets exclusively. I like chicken nuggets once in a while. I think they taste kind of good for a snack. Maybe if you're watching a football game, you know, in front of the TV or a basketball game, you know, something, you know, maybe for a change of pace. But every meal, she might once in a while substitute added to her diet a few French fries. But other than that, she really didn't eat anything. Until one day, after about 15 years, her tongue swelled up. She ran out of breath. She couldn't breathe. They took her to an emergency room. And they got her stabilized. And they told her, once she was stabilized, that they needed to make, she needed to make some changes or she would suffer an early death. She was living in a self-imposed famine because she had food available but only chose one food. And while it would sustain her for a little while, it didn't have the necessary nutrients that she needed for life. In the midst of a bounty of food, she was starving. We have our sword. We have our food. Jesus said to Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness, and Satan said, If you are the Son of God, cast these stones, turn these stones into bread. Fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. Physically possible, not a miraculous event in the fasting of food. Your body will endure. People have gone that long and longer. But, eventually, you're going to run out of what you need for life. So Satan, knowing that Jesus was hungry, was needing sustenance, was needing nourishment in his human state, in his incarnation, said, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. And Jesus said, man shall not, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If I don't have food that I'm trusting in God, whether I live or die is irrelevant. If I live... Praise God. If I die, I go to be with God. Man shall not live by bread alone. I don't know how many Bibles you have on your shelf. I have several. Uh, I have several on my computers. 
more than I can count off the top of my head. I don't use them all every day. I use two or three regularly for comparative study and reading. But Stacy's situation and what Dr. Birding went on to write about was we have a crisis point in our world, in our nation, among in our churches. Because we don't know the Bible. On one occasion, he would give to his freshman class at the university, tell them to do a character sketch of an Old Testament character. And one in, individual chose Joshua, the son of Nun. He wrote that Joshua was the son of a nun. A little bit different in our modern take. See, Joshua was the son of Nun. Nun was his father. Nun was a man. That was his name. It was not a woman in a Catholic church that had, was of the order of some order that practiced that. And that would be her title. That exposes a lack of knowledge. We have it in the world. We have it, sadly, in churches as well. George Gallup and Jim Casilli said in a survey that they did, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they've become a nation of biblical illiterates. So they went on to show how bad it was by saying, in 2013, only 15% of the people believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and while being inspired, does have some factual errors. 16% said the Bible is just another book of teachings written by men that contain stories and advice. Really? Stories and advice? Uh, 10% believe that Scripture is not inspired. Just a book that tells how its writers understood the ways and principles of God. These would be saying that it's not inspired, but men that were just very spiritually minded, men and women, they, got to, they wrote various things about their understanding of God. 25% of adults were able to correctly name the first five books of the Bible. Really? That's really hard? 22% of adults that were ages 29 and above thought that Noah's wife, who accompanied him on the ark with their children and their son's wives, her name was Jonah. It was Joan of Ark, not Jonah, Joan of Ark. I guess there's a connection. 30% of those who were 18 to 28 said that it was Joan of Ark. That's the problem, maybe in part, with making jokes about the Bible. Making jokes about God. Because it gets in, ingrained in people in a way that God didn't intend it to be. According to a Pew survey of religious knowledge, only four, 45% of adults could name all four Gospels. Most Christians could not identify more than two or three of the disciples. Matthew, Mark. No, Matthew, John, Andrew, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, anyway. We can name them more, right? 60% of Americans couldn't name five of the Ten Commandments. 82% of Americans believe that God helps those who help themselves as they burst in Scripture. There are a lot of misconceptions when it comes to some of these cute-sounding statements that we think are biblically based. 50% knew that John the Baptist was, one, uh, was not one of the apostles. 
45% didn't know that Paul and Saul were the same individual of adults. Those ages 18 to 28, it was 56% did not know that Paul and Saul were the same individual. And when it comes to preaching and great sermons and lectures, it was Billy Graham that preached the Sermon on the Mount. And so Barna says, increasingly America is biblically illiterate. In short, the survey concluded, most people don't believe the Bible to be authoritative. They believe it contains errors and evolution is the right way, which causes most of them to reject the biblical account of origins. And that is where doubt starts. How did we get here? How did we get to a place where people... Even Christians don't have an understanding of the Bible and key points of it. Well, we're faced with distractions. In the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said a man went out to sow, and you know the story. Some fell on the pathway, some fell on the rocky ground, some fell on the thorny ground, and some fell on the fertile ground. That which fell on the pathway was snatched away by the birds. That which fell on the rocky ground quickly gave root, and it died out in the heat of the day. But that which was in the thorny ground, it grew, and it was doing well until the thorns and thistles choked it out. Distractions. Because Jesus said it was choked out by the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. We can't let that be taking place in our lives. We can't have misplaced priorities where it's more important to go to a ball game than it is to assemble with God's people. It's more important to watch the news than to read the Word of God. And I'm kind of a news junkie in many ways. But I still find time to read the Word of God. I mean, give me the History Channel and some news, the Bible, and I'm good. Because I like history. Overconfidence. I've heard that people say we already know more. We already know more Bible verses than we practice anyway. What? What is that supposed to mean? We know more verses of the Bible than we practice. Well, then there's something wrong. We need to start practicing them, but we need to start knowing, learning more of them too. And then I guess just general is, hey, I'm just too busy. I've got this, I've got that, I've got work, I've got lawn to take care of, I've got to do dishes, I've got to cook. You know, I know it's life is busy. But it's a matter of aligning our life so that we're blessed by God. The problem of biblical illiteracy is significant. It has an effect on the individual and on churches. In the Old Testament, as we've studied the Minor Prophets on Wednesday, it's been a while since we've been in Hosea, since we're finishing up with Malachi this Wednesday. Hosea says in chapter 4, says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Also the fish of the sea disappear. Yet let no one find fault and let none offer reproof for your people are like those who contend with the priest. 
So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. They didn't know. They had no understanding of what God was saying. The priests weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing, teaching the people. He goes on to say, because you've rejected knowledge, I, will also, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you've forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. You've forgotten all about me. They were busy, just like we are. They faced things, but they had neglected the word of God, and therefore they were destroyed. Amos would say in chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, Behold, days are coming when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. 11 through 13. A lack of knowledge, a famine for the word of the Lord. Can you imagine being someplace for an extended period of time, deprived of having your Bible? And how empty life would be, how you would long for it? Well, they were thirsting for the word of the Lord. They wanted to know what? That they would have kind of confirmation that they were his people, that he was faithful to them. If you don't have it, how do you know it? Without knowledge, God's word, a person will make wrong choices, they'll stumble, they won't know where to turn. They will have no direction or guidance in life. The psalmist would say in the 119th Psalm, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So imagine you're out camping somewhere. You're out in the forest. You want to move. It's at night. You hear something. What do you do? What's the first thing you do? Grab a flashlight so you can see. We live in a world of darkness that Satan has clouded the minds and attitudes of people. This is a light to give us guidance. The psalmist would go on to say in the 119th Psalm, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Is God's word the joy of your heart? Something we have to ask ourselves. If it is, we will discipline ourselves to be reading and studying the Word of God. It's those who love your law, he went on to say in the 165th verse, have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. This guides us so that we'll know how to react and live the life that Christ has called us to live. Many lives are being destroyed. Many people are stumbling through life because they do not have God's word, the light of his word guiding them. And while it destroys people, if it destroys people, it will also destroy churches. Churches languish for teachers. Only a few want to take that role on. Why? Well, same old things. Distractions. Misplaced priorities. Busyness of, you know, not enough time. Teachers. The Hebrew writer said, there would come a time. He said that there is time that you should be teachers in chapter 5 and verse 13. For everyone, make sure, verse 12. For, for concerning him we have, no kids today, for concerning him we have much to say. 
And it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. He was trying to relate to them the supremacy of the new way in Christ over the old way. He's been talking here about Christ, our perfect high priest, in the order of Melchizedek. He says in verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, what does that mean? You ought to be teachers. It means you should have matured and grown enough to where you could instruct people and encourage and edify and build them up in the ways of the Lord. He says, you ought to be teachers. But you have, yet you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. You're still a babe. When you have had sufficient time in Christ, in your life, if you dedicate that time... It doesn't have to be 24-7. God knows we need to bathe. We need to sleep. We need to prepare meals. We need to take care of children. We need to work. But we have time, the same amount of time, that everyone else does. And yet we're amazed how some people grow so spiritually and are so focused on God and just don't understand and know what His Word says. What's the difference? We all have 24 hours in a day, and I didn't divide it into minutes or seconds. I know that Jim will do that for us tonight in his class on, you know, things that we can't, possessions we can take to heaven. Because we talk about time. But we're all given the same number of hours, the same number of years. It's how we utilize that. Peter would say churches are led astray by false teachers. How do we know when it's false? He said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. That should be taken as kind of a warning. Among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God didn't spare the angels who sinned. He cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness. He didn't spare the world to save Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Why? Because when he looked at Noah, he found something. It says simply that Noah found grace, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? He must have been a righteous man. I mean, his grandfather was Enoch. Maybe he was walking in the ways of his grandfather. And Enoch's that neat character that we know so little about. But in the midst of people living hundreds and hundreds of years, and he lived 300 and some years. But it says in Scripture that he walked with God, and God took him. He didn't die. God took him. How many churches are dying on the vine because their brethren are dying on the vine? How many churches go into apostasy because their members can't discern between truth and error? They don't know basic... They don't know the Bible basically. They don't understand reading it and understanding it in its context. And so they're led astray because, oh, that sounds so good. 
Many more Christians than not think that the Bible is too hard to understand, therefore God will give them in some miraculous way an understanding of His Word. Or it will reveal something to them special to them. Apart from His Word. It's almost like His Word doesn't matter. Because God will show me. And if our churches, if our people die from famine of the Word of God, and our churches die, how will we influence our world? We have standards of morality that are, wow, they're just not good anymore. Isaiah said in chapter 5 and verse 20, they would, woe to those who call evil, call good evil and evil good. One has said, has written, we kill the innocent, abortion. We spare the guilty, we don't punish criminals. And believe it or not, we now have many people in our society who are advocating death, infanticide, for children that are born with some type of a defect, if that child is, say, less than a year or two old. Two doctors wrote a journal of medical ethics. Uh, Alberto Gubellini and Francesca Minerva saying when circumstances occur after birth such as they would have justified the abortion taking place before birth we, we, what we call after birth abortion should be permissible so if your child has Down syndrome and you didn't catch it somehow in, in, in the womb and you would have aborted that noun system syndrome child, well, when it's born, it's okay to let it die. Or not just let it die, it's okay to give it something so it will die. What has our world come to? We reward those in celebrity status. We deprive the good. Morality has become according to the individual, according to the situation. Years ago, it was called situation ethics. Whatever it is in the situation, that will designate whether my action is moral or not. And so our families are destroyed. Society collapses. And we become like they did in in the days of the judges. When in chapter 21 and verse 25, it summarizes it very painfully. Everyone does does what is right in his own eyes. And when everyone is the master, the decider of his own morality, what standard of morality is there? There is none. The solution? We know that we are to be light and salt. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, after giving the Beatitudes and teaching us there, as Matthew records for it, I don't know that he talked them in this order. Matthew just kind of put his collection all together. These were the things that Jesus often and taught regularly. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're living the way of the Beatitudes. That's going to be 
an influence. That will be solved, that savoring influence, that, that influence in the world that it needs. It will be light to the world. And you know what's interesting is that he follows right after that. For do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We live the life that's embodied in the Beatitudes. And that influences our communities, our churches, our families. Jesus came to fulfill the law, and therefore he came to show us the way of righteousness from the heart following God. And that's what it's all about. So what do we do? We engage in personal, private Bible study and reading. The psalmist said in the first psalm, and I like how it opens in the very first psalm, it's this way. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He would be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. Prospering, showing, how it's to be. What's the difference between reading and studying? Reading is just going through it. And that's where little things will pop up, just, just jump right off the page at times. Studying is when you take a book and you dig down into it deeply. Or you take a topic, an idea, and you dig into that to find out everything that the Bible has said about that particular topic. But you do it deeply because you want it to become a part of you. And if you do that, you will increase in your understanding of the Word of God. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, You diligently study the Scriptures... Because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify to me, about me, but yet you refuse to come to me. You refuse to come to me to have life. See, the religious leaders of the day, they have the scriptures. They claimed to read them. They read them. They studied. But they didn't let it influence them. No, they were nice little thoughts to maybe live by to think about from time to time. But I have my life to live, and this is... This part of my life, and this is the rest of my life. And I'm not going to let either one of them cross. It's like there's this membrane between the lives. One can't influence the other. When you do that, though, when you study the Scriptures and you come to have life in Christ, you have the strength, the comfort, and the hope that Scripture provides. As we study with others, we realize the benefits of mutual edification. Because iron sharpens iron, right? And so when we're studying and we ask questions, and, and it's not what does this mean to you to personalize it, what do you think this means? I don't care what it means to you, I want to know what you think it means so that we can talk about it. I want to understand what this means, not what it means to read, 
But what does the scripture mean? We provide opportunities for people to come together to study on four occasions. Three on Sunday and one on Wednesday. We have Bible classes for all ages where we study the Word of God. Sometimes people will get together in homes to read and to study and to talk about the Word of God. Sometimes they'll do it when they're together and just on a having a fellowship at their home. Having a friend over. And they'll maybe say, you know, I was reading the other day and I want your thoughts. What do you think about this? We have parents who need to rise up and accept their God-given responsibility. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, Moses says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These are the words that I'm commanding you today. These words that I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. Diligently? Really? You mean like it's important? Like I'm going to be consistent? Like I'm going to stress it? You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These were important words. And God wanted His people to know about it. And how were they going to know about it unless they were taught? Now the church helps by having those set Bible classes that I mentioned. But parents cannot abdicate their responsibility and just say, well, they'll get it at church. But we only have them for four hours at the most. You have them the rest of the time. You need to set an example. You need to be involved in teaching your children at home and reading and letting them witness you read. Because if you're reading the scriptures, they will see it as being important to you. And they will say, if it's important to my mom and my dad, I'm going to make it important in my life. So the question might be, are you willing to accept your parental duties to end biblical illiteracy? And then we have to have elders and preachers who will fulfill their role, their duty of the word. Elders are supposed to be able to convict the false teacher. That's one of the characteristics of a man who would be an elder. He's to be able to convict. How do you convict a false teacher? How do you show that false teacher the error of his ways? If you don't know the word, you can't. Preachers are to give heed to the word. And to preach that word. In 2 Timothy chapter 3. You thought I was going to go to chapter 4. And I will. But anyway. But just realize where he's coming from in chapter 3. And we can go back into chapter 2. It all ties in so much. It's hard to take one out and start here. But realize this. Verse 1 of chapter 3. 2 Timothy. But realize this. In the last days difficult times will come. For men will become lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, you know, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, or haters of good rather than lovers of God. Verse 3 and 4, correction. 
holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied his power. Avoid such men as these. He goes on and tells about the condition of the world. It really doesn't seem all that different today. And so he would tell Timothy, I charge you, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They'll turn away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So the preachers need to be in the word. Elders and preachers who, who are engaged in the lives of people, and when there's a problem, as an elder shepherds a Christian. They don't need pop psychology. They need the Word of God. It might help to have some insights, and if they're trained in some of those helping sciences, that's great. But they don't need to get into the latest. Get into the Word of God. Preachers and elders need to commit themselves to ending biblical illiteracy. It starts with them as doing it in their own lives. It's easy to get busy and to forget the Word of God. I don't know about you, but I think this material is somewhat important. And it will spring into the lesson for next week as well. A few years ago, Albert Moeller wrote an article titled The Scandal of Biblical Illiteracy is Our Problem. And he ended with these words. Churches must recover the centrality, the urgency of biblical teaching and preaching. Refuse to sideline the ministry to the preacher. Preachers... And churches are too busy, too distracted to make biblical knowledge a central aim of the ministry. But who are too busy or distracted will produce believers who simply don't know enough to be faithful disciples. He continues, we will not believe more than, more than we know and we will not live higher than our beliefs. The many fronts of Christian compromise in this generation can be traced to biblical illiteracy in pews and the absence of biblical teaching and preaching in our homes and churches. This generation must get deadly serious about the problem of biblical, biblical illiteracy where a frighteningly large number of Americans, including those who claim to be Christians, will go on thinking that Sodom and Gomorrah went on living happily ever after. And so, while this lesson is yours, I want to have you thinking about next Sunday. Because my lesson next Sunday is going to deal with some misconceptions that we have. Because what's contributed to our biblical illiteracy, I haven't mentioned that, and that is the Twitterized Bible. The soundbite Bible. That we've taken scripture out of context. And that's all we know. And when you take it out of the context, you start thinking, oh, this sounds good. And it becomes nothing more than a motivational, well-sounding word or two. And we need to get away from that and get back into the heart of the word. We need to get serious about the problem of biblical ignorance and illiteracy. We do that, as we said last week in the uh, sacrifices, where Paul said to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. By the renewing, not being being transformed by the renewing of your mind, not being conformed to this world. I really butchered that quote. But you know where I'm coming from. As uh, 
Paul said it in this way. Therefore I present you, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We need to conform ourselves to God's word and not the world. And we need to know and learn his word. Where are you today? This lesson hasn't been one to tell you about the fundamentals of obedience to the gospel. It hasn't been designed to teach you that Jesus is the sacrifice who gave his life for you. That God loved you so much that he gave his son to die for you. Those things are true. If you need to talk more about them, we'll be glad to do so. This lesson has been designed to get you into the word to learn those things. But the invitation of Jesus is open. And if you stand in need of responding to his invitation, we ask you to come forward together while we stand and while we sing.